All right, we like to do obituaries in this program because we think some people's passing is worthy of note. We have two people worthy of note today. A former coach of the Houston Oilers, Bum Phillips, who passed away last week. And Hollywood stuntman turned director, Hal Needham. Let's start with Bum. You may have noted that we're generally not huge fans of, of things from Texas on this show, but we make an exception for Bum Phillips, just like we did for Dandy Don Meredith, because he was just a damn funny guy. Obituaries note that he really did have uh, cowboy ancestors, and so when he strutted the sidelines in boots, jeans, and a white Stetson, he, uh, he was entitled to it. Phillips got on the national scene back in 1975 when he took charge of the Houston Oilers and three times got them within one game of the Super Bowl. But I think we're going to commemorate him mainly with some of his great quips for today's show. Said Bum Phillips, there's two kinds of coaches, them that's been fired and them that's going to be fired. He could be philosophical. He once said, you fail all the time, but you aren't a failure until you start blaming somebody else. He also said, and I love this for a football coach, winning is only half of it. Having fun's the other half. But he was noted for his ability to judge the football talent put before him. He once said, two, there's two kinds of players that ain't worth a damn. One never does what he's told, and one who does nothing but what he's told. My personal favorite among the Bum Phillips quotes is apparently, well, I've got two of them, actually. Somebody once remarked to him that his running back, Earl Campbell, was unable to finish a mile run. Phillips said in response, well, when it's first in a mile, I won't give it to him. Apparently, fellow coach Sid Gilman, who once said to him that breaking down the game films was better than sex. Phillips responded, Sid, you must not be doing it right. And once after he retired, somebody asked him what he did all day, and he said, nothing. And I don't start doing that till noon. Because we're the Houston boys. And an equally amusing fellow, I think, was Hal Needham. I had a nincompoop employee tell me a couple years ago when Needham was doing some uh, uh, interviews on the circuit that, you know, you ought to interview Hal Needham. I'm sorry to say I did not take him up on what was probably the only piece of good advice he ever gave. Needham really was an honest-to-God stuntman and, a, by all accounts, one of the very best. And rather amazingly, he did make a successful transition into being a film director. Known as obituary in the L.A. Times, he maintained a sunny outlook even after plunging into the unknown territory of film directing. Needham told an interviewer, I can go back and fall on my head any time. Supposedly one time he was on the set when John Wayne was throwing a punch that was not convincing to anybody. He was clearly missing the guy's head. Said Needham in his 2011 memoir, Stuntman, my car-crashing, plane-jumping, bone-breaking, death-defying Hollywood life. The Duke was throwing a straight-on jab by the side of the guy's face. You could see it was missing by a mile. Without being asked, Needham stepped in and demonstrated an ever-so-close roundhouse punch, a lesson for which the Duke did not thank him. Later on in the bar, Wayne grabbed the stuntman in a headlock and loudly berated him for showing him up in front of the crew. Needham wrote, A few seconds passed, and I wasn't sure if he was going to release my head or tear it off. Wayne told him to keep the good ideas coming and keep the bad ones to himself. But it was apparently Needham's uh, friendship with Burt Reynolds that led to him taking the director's chair. 
He started with Smokey and the Bandit in 1977, which, of which I believe there was a sequel. He also made uh, Hooper, Stoker Ace, and The Cannonball Run, the story of a wild cross-country car race. The critics weren't too crazy about the films. Apparently in 1981, Roger Ebert called The Cannonball Run an abdication of artistic responsibility at the lowest possible level of ambition. In other words, Ebert wrote, they didn't even care enough to make a good, lousy movie. Needham, for his part, didn't take criticism too seriously. Cannonball Run earned more than $72 million and was the year's sixth top-grossing movie. Needham took out an ad in Variety, which featured excerpts from the bad reviews, and then next to it, a photo of himself sitting on a wheelbarrow full of money. Hal Needham may not have been Orson Welles, but I think he did a pretty good job of mixing up Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, Jackie Gleason, and Jerry Reed. And of course, we're talking about Hal Needham, the director who put out Smoking the Bandit, and allows us to play an excerpt from Eastbound and Down by Jerry Reed, which we like very much. Keep your foot hard on the pedal, son, never mind them brakes. Let it all hang out, cause we got a run to make. The boys are thirsty in Atlanta, and there's beer in Texarkana, and we'll bring it back no matter what it takes. Eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. And now for our Hollywood finale, a piece we did, I think, God, 10 years ago, Mr. McMillan. Looking back on the antics of the Mercury Theater on the air back in 1938, well, let's close with this. That, of course, was the opening to the famous radio drama, The Shadow. This was, in fact, the highest-rated dramatic program on old-time radio from the 1930s to the 1960s. Anyone old enough to have listened to those shows, it said, uh, can generally do a credible impression of those uh, spooky uh, opening lines that uh, began each show. I think for this evening's show, it would be good to recall an episode of Old Time Radio, probably the most famous episode of Old Time Radio, perhaps the most famous episode in the history of radio. It happened on Halloween, actually the day before Halloween, it was uh, to be exact, October 30th, 1938. It went down like this. It was Halloween Eve, 8 o'clock. Most people... Perhaps 60 million people, as was a typical audience of that era, were tuned into the radios that night, and most of them were listening to NBC, which was by far the most popular network at the time. They were listening, most likely, to Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. One of history's uh, most famous ventriloquist acts had a whopping audience share of 34.7. Competing against it on CBS was the Mercury Theater on the Air a show that was holding down a rather anemic rating of 3.6 and at that point in time lacked a regular sponsor. The Mercury Theater on the Air was a spin-off of the just-formed Mercury Theater, which was on Broadway. That was headed by a young man named Orson Welles. His theatrical company uh, included numerous uh, people who went on to later fame and fortune as radio and movie stars, Agnes Moorhead, Joseph Cotton, Everett Sloan, Ray Collins, etc., 
Orson Welles was just 23 years old, but he'd already been on the cover of Time magazine for his success on Broadway with various theatrical projects. The Mercury Theater on the Air was attempting to give radio a theatrical, even classical, respectability, which it had lacked before. Uh, their efforts to date had been somewhat lackluster. When Wells apparently got the idea of a bit of a, I guess you'd say, publicity stunt that might draw more attention to his program. In this, he certainly succeeded beyond anybody's expectations, including himself. Writer Howard Koch was contracted to adapt H.G. Wells's sci-fi classic, The War of the Worlds, for radio. Koch used practically nothing of the original Wells story, except the idea, and switched the location from 19th century England to Grover's Mill, New Jersey, a real town in New Jersey he decided upon by closing his eyes and sticking his pencil on a New Jersey map. So let's see if we, we, if we can't recreate for you on this Halloween what went down back in 1938. So it's 8 o'clock. Like most radio listeners, you sat down in front of your radio, you turned it on to enjoy the comedy stylings of Edgar Bergen and his uh, wisecracking dummy, Charlie McCarthy. Well, printing is a noble profession. Yeah, the way we do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin and Mark Twain, they were printers. Yeah? When Thomas Edison was a boy, he had a printing press, too. He did? Yes. Gee. Uh, what sort of press have you got? Is it a hand press? No, it's really a second-hand press. <laughs> we got it from Skinny's uncle. Skinny's uncle. Yes. He, he used to do very well with it. Made a lot of money. Why'd he give it up? FBI. Oh, I... <laughs> Meanwhile... Over at NBC, the opening of this CBS Mercury Theater of the Air clearly mentions that what follows will be a dramatization of an H.G. Wells story. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Keep in mind, however, that nobody's listening to CBS. Oh, except for the 3% audience share that uh, that would normally do so, most people are over at NBC listening to Charlie McCarthy cut up. But Wells and other people knew that 12 minutes into the Charlie McCarthy show, a singer would usually be brought on. The singing was, uh, was often inserted into programs to broaden the appeal of the comedy. Clancy was a peaceful man, if you know what I mean. The cops picked up the pieces after Clancy left the scene. He never looked for trouble, that's a fact you can assume. And millions of people across America, not interested in hearing some singing, reached over to turn the dial to see what else might be on. Do you hear it? The curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, Mr. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see a cylindrical uh, shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and this thing must be hollow. 
Millions of people in a somewhat more gullible era listened to what was transpiring and assumed that they were hearing something being broadcast live. This became quite hair-raising as the radio drama of The War of the Worlds took a decidedly alarming turn. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Ah, oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now, at this moment, with the radio drama going to dead air, people assumed something was seriously wrong. Because, let's face it, radio stations, even to this day, just don't go to dead air. I was taught over at Community Radio that uh, if you have a three-second uh, uh, lag of dead air, you're supposed to come on in and do a station identification. Well, this whole matter of, um, of, of putting this show together to make it seem authentic was something that Wells worked very hard on. Just one year before this program, during the Hindenburg disaster, a live radio newsman, Herbert Morrison, covered the event in a dramatic style that still reverberates um, in uh, the, the halls of the Museum of Radio and, um, and Broadcasting. The actor that, that, that played the, the newsman, Carl Phillips, obtained a recording of Herbert Morrison, listened to it to get just right the panicky, eerie sounds that went over the air during the Hindenburg disaster. They were duplicated here with, uh, with a, a great deal of seeming authenticity. It was later estimated that six million people heard the show. Most of them were not listening when the show began, but once they stumbled upon the, what was going on on, uh, on CBS... They listened briefly and panicked. People fled into the street, jumped into their cars, and sped away to avoid the Martian attack. Switchboards start lighting up all over the country as people called police stations or just showed up at the station to ask what they should do for the evacuation. At CBS, the operators were swamped with calls, and as the show was proceeding, the studio saw 20 uniformed police officers come in to decide what to do about all the fuss. A CBS executive very nearly took the microphone to assure the public this is all a joke, but Wells, knowing he only had a minute to the station break, managed to restrain him from doing so. 
As mass hysteria gripped the nation, people called to report verification of the Martian death machines striding across the countryside, starting fires and knocking down power lines. Now, not everyone was taken in, of course. Many of the younger listeners to the show recognized Orson Welles' voice. In fact, the shadow with which we began this segment was, at that time, portrayed by the same Orson Welles. Nevertheless, when the show was rebroadcast across the country, hysteria broke out in cities as far-flung as San Francisco, Indianapolis, Providence, Kansas City, Richmond, Atlanta, and Reno. Now, in the second half of the dramatization, events shift to two weeks into the future. But by this point, with everybody running around the streets with towels on their head or to prevent the, them from absorbing the poison gas described in the drama, uh, no one seemed to notice. Luckily, in spite of people running around like chickens with their head cut off, it turned out in the end that no one had suffered any lasting damage except perhaps to their pride. I believe that uh, the worst that happened was someone sprained their ankle running for their car. There were reports that actually, though, someone almost took poison, thinking that, oh, my God, it's better to die this way than from those awful infernal Martians. But in fact, no one did. The radio industry was able to make its apologies. Uh, lawsuits were not successful. And Orson Welles, who had caref- who must have known, who admitted later, laughed very uh, uproariously over this whole episode. He appeared on uh, before the news media the next day saying, oh my goodness, we had no idea the power of the radio to do this sort of thing. But it's clear in retrospect that, uh, that this is a bit Machiavellian. Welles, as a consequence of this act, became a household name in America. The program, the Mercury Theater on the Air, gained Campbell's Soup as a sponsor and did very well afterwards. As a result of all of the hubbub, Hollywood took note of this uh, Broadway uh, prodigy and gave him a very lucrative contract to make movies over at RKO. It was hoped, of course, that Wells would make a movie about H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Instead, he produced a movie called Citizen Kane still regarded as one of, if not the greatest movie ever made, certainly one of the top choices. So, in the end, it all turned out well for Orson Welles, for the Mercury Theater on the Air, for CBS, for the radio industry, and for a temporarily embarrassed nation. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it, and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. That just about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Tune in next week, and we'll see if we can get you up to speed on the issue of the Ison Comet headed toward the sun, and hopefully putting on a show for us Earthlings. 